Well, good morning, Grace Chapel. Good to be with you all this morning. I want to give a quick shout out to the Watertown campus. Yesterday, they hosted Harvest Fest on the lot next, next to them. They invited the community to come and join them for a day of games and connection and food and um, heard that over 800 folks from uh, the community stopped and made a connection there. It's a great thing. Took 100 or so volunteers to make it all happen. They gave away 600 cider donuts. But no worries, we still have some in the cafe if you want some today. So uh, I got to drop by for a little while, and it was a great sight to see true community happening right there on Main Street in Watertown. Love, joy, laughter, connection, children, families, friends. It was a great, great sight, and lots of folks got to take advantage of it and uh, learn a little bit more, get a glimpse into the kingdom of God. So way to go, Watertown, and trust you all had a great day there. Well, we are all familiar with the concept of the chosen one as a motif in literature and popular culture. A few examples will quickly, quickly clarify what I'm after. Harry Potter. As an infant, he survives a killing curse and is marked with a scar, identifying him as the one wizard who can save the world from evil Lord Voldemort. In Lord of the Rings, Frodo, uh, Frodo Baggins is chosen to bear the one ring to Mordor and to save Middle-earth. Katniss Everdeen is chosen to represent District 12 in the Hunger Games and then to lead the rebellion against the Capitol. In the movie The Matrix, Neo is a computer programmer who discovers that he's the one who's destined to liberate humankind from the machines that are controlling them. You get the idea. The chosen one is a character with special abilities and a unique role to play in saving somebody, the nation, the world from impending disaster. And there's this sense that this chosen one is both long-awaited and predetermined by fate or destiny or the gods. Now there's a reason this chosen one motif is so powerful, so compelling. It's because deeply embedded in the human psyche is the longing for a leader. Not just a leader, but a rescuer. Someone strong and wise and good who will come along at just the right time with just what we need to save us from whatever it is that is threatening us. There's a sense that if this special someone doesn't show up, that all may be lost. The special someone is the chosen one. Now, it's not just a plot line for novels and, uh, and movies. It's a narrative that has been playing out all through human history. For as long as human beings have been on this planet, as long as there have been human societies, we have sought leaders, people who will unite us, people who will show us the way, people who will protect us and prosper us. Now, we call them by all kinds of names, chief, captain, commander, king, president, prime minister, senior pastor, big names like that. <laughs> the power is incredible, it really. But what we're looking for, what we're longing for is a leader. Now, it's a ritual that we go through every four years here in America. We choose someone to lead us into the future. 
someone that we believe has the, the smarts and the skill and the will to face whatever challenges we are facing as a nation, to uh, strengthen our economy, to secure our borders, to provide freedom and justice and opportunity for people and a good way of life. Now, right now, we have quite a cast of characters presenting themselves to us as potential leaders. And I mean a cast of characters. There's a lot of them. I've lost count, frankly. And some of them are characters. <laughs> In fact, it's this longing for a leader that helps us ex understand the, the Trump phenomenon. I mean, how do we explain this? Who would have thought that a reality TV star, a businessman with a checkered past and no government experience would be making a credible run for the White House. This week, he hit his 100th day atop the polls of leading Republican candidates for the president. Now, no one predicted this. How do we explain it? Well, if you ask me, it all comes down to the hat. Okay, not the hair, but the hat. The hat says it all, make America great again. You see, Trump has tapped into that human longing for someone to show us the way, someone to solve our problems, someone who can help us face whatever our, our nation is dealing with. Many people feel as though our country is losing its way and, and losing our greatness. We want to be great again. And, and Trump presents himself as someone bold enough, strong enough, resourceful enough, not afraid to, to take us into that better future. And people like that kind of leadership. Because if America is great, then the economy will great, be great, and the schools will be great, and, the, and our, our military will be great, and then my life can be great. And ultimately, that's what we want from our leaders, to deliver us a good and happy life for ourselves, for those we love, for the people that we are a part of. So I take the time to set up this whole chosen one idea, this concept of a longing for a leader, because it's central to our rediscovery of Jesus. Now, how's that for a segue? Donald Trump to Jesus in one line. <laughs> this fall, we are looking for traces of Jesus in the Old Testament. And so far, we have found him in the early chapters of Genesis, the account of creation. We have found him in the early years of Israel's history, Abraham, Exodus, we have found him in the story of an innocent sufferer, uh, a man named Job. And these have been intriguing discoveries. But if we're to imagine ourselves as miners digging deep underground in search of gold, so far all we have found is a little bit of dust and a promising nugget or two. Today, we're going to hit the mother load. We're going to strike a vein of Scripture so laden with traces of Jesus we practically find his name written there in the Old Testament. Today we're going to be in the book of Psalms. And depending on how you count, there are anywhere from 50 to 100 references to Jesus in the book of Psalms. And today I'd like to take you to three of them. Now, I really tried hard to choose one. <laughs> I really did. But you really need three to get a flavor of the whole book. And these three Psalms are going to help us understand, first of all, how Jesus went from being a popular rabbi to a crucified criminal in a few short years. How did that happen? More importantly, these psalms are going to help us understand 
why Jesus is the one we are looking for, and why He is the only one we can trust to rule our lives and the world. So as I offer you these three psalms, I want, I want us to remember that the psalms originally were, were not meant to be read. They were meant to be sung or prayed or heard out loud in the company of God's people. So I'm not going to try to sing them for you this morning, but I would like you to hear a portion of each of them so that you get a feel for these, these psalms, these prayers, these songs. So let's begin with a few, a few lines from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord. The rulers of the earth gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say. Let us throw off their fetters. But the one enthroned in heaven laughs. He scoffs at them. Then the Lord rebukes them in His anger. He terrifies them with His wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. Now keep in mind, this is Psalm 2. It comes right at the beginning of the collection. And most scholars agree that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are meant to go together, and they are the gateway to the book of Psalms. They set up the theme and, and the mood of, of the book. Psalm 1 is directed to individuals. If you remember, blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. It's directed to individuals, telling them to walk in God's ways. Psalm 2 is directed to the nation, reminding them to look for and trust God's leadership in their corporate lives. So let's look at the first couple of verses. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Now, we need to look at that phrase, anointed one, because it's going to turn out to be one of the most important concepts in the Bible and in the story of Jesus. Now, the original hearers of this psalm, when they heard it read in church, that word anointed one, they would immediately rethink of the shepherd boy, David. And the time Samuel came to search for Israel's next king, they would remember how all of Jesse's sons were paraded before Samuel the prophet, and all of them handsome and strong, but none of them were adequate. Till finally David shows up, the youngest, standing there just back from the fields. And the book of 1 Samuel tells us, Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of the brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David with power. So the anointing with oil symbolized the touch of God on a person's life. It, it set them apart for some special task, and it endowed them with special power for that task. The Hebrew word for anointed is Masiach, which comes to us as Messiah. And most scholars agree this, this whole notion of a chosen one begins with the nation of Israel right here in the book of Psalms. Now, when this word anointed one is translated from Hebrew into Greek, it's the word Christos from which we, of course, get Christ. So Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is his title. Jesus 
the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the One. Now, David, or whoever was writing this psalm, couldn't possibly have known all of that when he was writing these words. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right here at the beginning of Israel's prayer book, we find traces of Jesus. This is not so much a prophecy as it is a foreshadowing. Because these words spoke with relevance to the people of their day, reminding the people of Israel to look for a leader, to trust God's leadership. But they were also anticipating a greater reality yet to come. And so we call this a messianic psalm. And again, there are anywhere from 15 to 20 of them in the, in the book. Now, chances are this was a coronation psalm. In other words, it would have been prayed when a new king was being installed or maybe on the eve of a great battle or after a great victory. It was a promise that God would provide leaders for his people who would lead them and the world into a good way of life. But there's something disturbing here in this prayer. Just as there's this human longing for a leader, there's this human tendency to resist those leaders, to rebel against that leadership when we don't like where it's taking us. Look again at verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot? They take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us throw off their fetters. Now, David's referring to the Gentile nations here, the, the pagan nations surrounding Israel who resisted God and his rule. But we know from history that even the people of Israel at certain points are going to want to break away from God's rule. They're going to take matters into their own hands. They don't trust him. They don't believe he'll come through. And so they come up with their own plans and their own alliances. And so it seems that even though we know we need leadership, it's not uncommon for us to resist that leadership when we don't like where it's taking us or we don't have confidence in the leader anymore. We see that happen nationally and politically. Here in America, every two or four or eight years, we hold an election, and part of our impulse there is to throw the bums out. Whoever was in power, let's throw them out and put the other guys in power for a while and see if maybe they can get it right. That desire to break from our leaders is not just a national political thing. It's a personal spiritual thing as well as we, like the people of Israel, at times want to throw off God's leadership in our lives. For instance, God tells us, save sexual intimacy for the safety of marriage. He says to us, be generous with your money. Give away 10% or more of everything that you get. He tells us to set aside one day a week for rest and worship and play and nothing else. He tells us to love our enemies, to forgive those who hurt us, to put others' interests ahead of our own. And if we live this way, he says, we will have a good and productive life. But we don't always believe that. We don't always trust him. And so we're tempted to throw off those fetters and do sex or money or time or relationships 
in our own way, in a way we think will bring us happiness. And so we have these conflicting tendencies as human beings. The longing for a leader, someone who will show us the way, and then this tendency when we don't like it to push, push, and rebel. Now, why do we do that? That's what David's asking in the psalm. Why do the nations rage? Don't they know it's futile? Don't we know that God's in charge? He made the universe. He knows how it works. We can't break his moral laws without getting hurt any more than we can defy the law of gravity and not get hurt. It's futile to try to resist God's ways. It's not only futile, it's foolish. It's foolish because God is a good leader. He created us and this world for good and eternal things, and it only makes sense to follow his lead. So that leads us to the second psalm I'd like to call your attention to, Psalm 72. And again, I'll give you a chance just to, uh, to listen a little bit. Endow the king with your justice, God, the royal son with your righteousness. He will rule the peoples with righteousness, the afflicted ones with justice. The mountains will bring prosperity to the land. The hills will bring forth the fruit of righteousness. He will defend the afflicted and the needy. He will be like rain falling on a mown field, like showers watering the earth. In his days, the righteous will flourish. Prosperity will abound till the moon is no more. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through him, and they will call him blessed. Psalm 72. Now that, too, is a royal psalm, a coronation psalm. It's attributed to Solomon, whether he wrote it and it was prayed for him or for his sons to come after. But we can imagine the congregation singing this song, praying this prayer whenever a new king takes the throne or on the anniversary of the king's coronation, perhaps. And once again, we hear that human longing for a leader, someone strong and wise and good who will overcome everything that threatens us and lead us into a good and productive life. And once again, there's a sense that this leader needs to be anointed, set apart, empowered by God. So it's a wonderful prayer. It, it expresses all of our deepest longings for, for what we hope leaders will bring to us in every area of life. But here's the problem. No one can live up to it. I mean, what human leader can possibly fulfill all the longings of this prayer? Peace, justice, prosperity for everyone, everywhere, all over the earth. I mean, who can deliver that? We, we know that's true, even here in our own history. I mean, America has enjoyed great leadership over our centuries. Men and women, gifted, dedicated, wise, brave men and women who have brought good leadership to our nation, who have given birth to a great nation, who have addressed social and economic problems and made us a prosperous and a free nation. But, but, but none of those leaders have been able to provide the kind of universal justice and freedom and prosperity we're reading about here. When President Obama was elected nearly eight years ago now, 
there was this sense, there was this hope that, that he might be the one who could finally heal the racial divide in our country. I mean, even Republicans had to acknowledge the promise of an African-American being elected to the highest office in our land. This was an element of promise. And here we are, eight years later, still reeling from Ferguson and Charleston, still confused as to how we can deal with our racial differences and overcome this strife. So who, who then can lead us to a better place? What man or woman can possibly overcome and address all of these challenges? None. None. No earthly leader, no ordinary man or woman, no extraordinary man or woman can bring around the kind of peace, justice, prosperity, and security the world longs for. And eventually, that truth dawned upon the people of Israel, too. As the years went by, as kings came and went, it became abundantly clear that no ordinary king was going to fulfill the longings of Psalm 72. I mean, David, David was a great king, a warrior, a worshiper, but he shed too much blood, and he failed spiritually. Solomon was a great king, a great builder, a great keeper of the peace, but he too failed morally and politically and spiritually. And from there, it only got worse. The kingdom divides at that point, rent apart by rivalry and strife. And the kings that followed, most of them were a disaster. The few good and godly ones, even they fell short of God's purposes. So every time a new king came along, the people would break out Psalm 72. They would pray and sing it and get their hopes up, only to have their leaders disappoint them to discover how inadequate every human leader was. And so eventually, the people began to understand they needed a different kind of leader. A leader who would be sent to them directly from God. A human leader, but an anointed leader with strength and wisdom and power like no human being they had ever met before. And that's where the messianic hope of Israel was born. And this is one of the messianic psalms, and there are about 15 of them in the, in the book of Psalms. And so you can imagine how hope began to rise when this charismatic rabbi appears on the scene gaining popularity and prominence. Rumor has it he's a descendant of David, born in Bethlehem, they say. His stump speech was a real crowd pleaser. The time has come, the kingdom is at hand. It's just what people wanted to hear. He championed the working class. Blessed are the poor and the meek and the humble, he said. He promised freedom from oppressors. He provided food for the hungry. He healed the sick. Talk about health care reform. He healed the sick. He even had a tax plan. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And after a while, people began to talk. Maybe he's the one. Somebody give him a hat. Make Israel great again. <laughs> that was the expectation. But then things turned sour. Whenever they tried to rally a crowd around him, he would disperse the crowd and slip away into the hills. When they tried to make him king, he declined the nomination. 
He refused to take up arms. He refused to take on Rome. Instead, he talked about loving their enemies and carrying their cloaks two miles instead of one. He played fast and loose with the law sometimes. He insisted on hanging out with losers and lowlifes. And as time went by, he talked more and more about suffering and humiliation and death. This didn't sound very presidential or very messianic. This was not the kind of leader they were hoping for who was going to conquer their enemies and make them great once again. Now, for a moment, they got their hopes up. That day he came riding into Jerusalem on the eve of Passover with his entourage. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. Can you hear the echoes of the Psalms? That's what they were remembering. This could be it, they thought. But then it all unraveled. He disrespected the temple. He insulted the religious leaders. And when the crowd saw him bruised and beaten by Pilate, silent and submissive before his captors, they concluded he was just another one of those false messiahs. Crucify him, they said. If only they had read their psalms more carefully. Not just 2 and 72, but Psalm 22. That's the third psalm I'd like to call your attention to today. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It's melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a piece of old clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You've laid me in the dust of death. They have pierced my hands and my feet. They stare and gloat over me. I can count all my bones. They divide my garments among them. They cast lots for my clothing. Psalm 22. If only they'd remembered this too was a royal psalm. This was a coronation psalm. A thousand years before the Romans devised death by crucifixion, David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, describes it in vivid and precise detail. Talk about traces of Jesus. We might as well find his name written here in Psalm 2. But somehow, in their reading and reciting of the scriptures, they had missed that this was going to be a different kind of Messiah, a suffering servant, a humble king. His kingdom would not come with a show of force, but with a dramatic display of love. Instead of a hat with an upbeat slogan, this Messiah would wear a crown made of thorns and pressed onto his head. If only they could have seen it. He was right in front of them. In fact, the words were right in front of them. John tells us, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, this is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The languages of the whole known world at the time. 
It was right in front of them, but they, they couldn't see it. The long-awaited Messiah, the chosen one who could finally put them right with God, with each other, and with the world, and they missed it. Even Jesus tried to tell them. He called attention to this Psalm 22 by quoting that opening line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because you see, Psalm 22 was also a coronation psalm. It begins with that cry of dereliction, but it ends with a cry of victory. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to save me. I will declare your name among my brothers. In your congregation, I will praise you. Let all your peoples praise you. For you have not despised the suffering of your afflicted one. The poor eat and are satisfied. They who seek the Lord praise him. May their hearts live forever. All the nations of earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. Posterity will serve him. A generation yet to be born will declare his praises. For he has done it. That's how Psalm 22 ends, with a cry of victory. And, and by quoting the first line of this psalm, Jesus is not only expressing his abandonment, he's calling their attention to the rest of the psalm. If I say to you, for God so loved the world, what do you think in your heads? That he gave his only begotten son. Why? Because you know it so well. Because it's good news. Well, that's what Jesus is doing here. The, the people knew Psalm 22. They'd memorized it as kids. They, they recited it in church, in synagogue. In fact, this was a common way of leading worship in the synagogue. The leader would call out the first line of a psalm, and the congregation would provide the rest of it. Do you see what's happening? Jesus is leading worship from the cross. He's calling their attention to the psalm. He's saying, I'm the one. This is about me. I am the anointed one. But they couldn't see it, or they wouldn't see it. And so instead, they took their stand against him, against the Lord and against his anointed one, just as David had predicted. And sure enough, not one generation later, 70 AD, the city was overrun by the Romans. The temple was destroyed, never to be built again. And their people were scattered to the far corners of the earth because they failed to recognize their day of visitation. They missed their king. Now, we're going to talk more about this suffering servant in the weeks to come as we continue our journey through the Old Testament. But as we finish up today, what are, what are a few thoughts we can take away? What, is, what does this mean for us, this journey through the Psalms? Well, three things, I hope. First, I hope you're beginning to see how important the Old Testament is to understanding Jesus. All this history, all this poetry, all this wisdom, it's all pointing to Jesus. The, this, the Psalms help us understand why Jesus was so popular at the beginning because their hopes were or so high, and why they were so angry and disappointed when he didn't seem to deliver. You need the Old Testament. We need to dig deeply to rediscover Jesus. 
The second thing I hope you're getting here is a new appreciation for the inspiration, for the authority, for the reliability of the Bible. I mean, these words were written a thousand years before anyone ever dreamed of death by crucifixion. And yet David describes it in remarkable detail. And, and, and the, the miracle of these psalms is that they can speak to the ancient world. They spoke to da the people of David's day and reminded them to look for a king. They speak to our day as they remind us that Christ is our king and we can look to him. But they also point to the future, to a day when our king will return in power and glory to finally and forever establish his rule. The scriptures are remarkable. But the most important thing I hope for today is that you will recognize Jesus as your Messiah. That you not miss the day of your visitation. Because as Scripture and history teach us, Jesus is the one we're looking for. And the only one we can trust to rule our lives and the world. The only one we can trust to make our lives and our world great again. We have this cast of characters running for president. And one of them will be chosen by the American people to lead us for the next four years. And that is a good thing. Government is a good thing ordained by God to preserve order and peace and justice. And we are blessed to live in a country in which we have the freedom to participate in the choosing of those leaders. So I encourage you to do that thoughtfully and prayerfully. But let's not kid ourselves into thinking that any of these leaders are going to be able to deliver the kind of justice and peace and, and uh, security that we and this world long for. And let us never think that by political power we can somehow bring in the kingdom of God. No, the kingdom of God advances one person at a time. As people like you and me recognize our king. And we do that by bowing before him, by admitting our need of him, and by inviting him to rule every aspect of our lives. Our time and our money and our relationships and our career, our homes, our church, the communities in which we live, and the wider world around us. Today may be the day of your visitation. Your king making himself known to you. Maybe for the first time in your life, you're recognizing him as the one you need. Maybe after pushing him away for a long time, you're ready once again to bow and make him Lord in your life. Or maybe there's some particular aspect of your life you've been running on your own and keeping from him, and he's asking you to surrender that today. Let's bow and pray for a few minutes. I'm going to give you some quiet time just to talk to the Lord and allow him to take the rightful throne of your life. And then we'll conclude by praying together the Lord's Prayer. Thank you, Lord, for speaking into our lives today through these remarkable psalms. Thank you for the hope that they inspire within us. Thank you for the conviction they bring of our foolishness. Lord, pray that each of us now might humbly and faithfully invite you to rule our lives.
Let's pray together the Lord's Prayer using the words sins and sinners. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.